Well, hello, everyone. Mark DeMoz here in Little Rock, Arkansas, with my good friend, Dr. Derwin Gray. He's all the way from South Carolina, Fort Mill at Transformation Church. We're here today to talk about his latest book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. And Derwin, I'm so excited to be with you here, part of the Exponential Webinar Series today, June 30th. I can't even believe it. Today, 28 years ago, my family of just two kids arrived in Little Rock, uh, and eight years later, we would set off on the journey to plant Mosaic Church. Uh, now, today, I've got four kids. I've got four grandkids. As you and I were talking before the webinar, boy, time sure flies, doesn't it? It does, man. And, and, and you know, be, before we get into the formalities and technicalities, uh, something that I want to do, I, I think that giving honor is so important. And um, you were so foundational in a lifeline for me. Um, as I was reading the Bible, as I was reading the New Testament, I was seeing this, this beautiful picture of a multi-ethnic church. And so your friendship and your book on building a multi-ethnic church was so foundational. Like it is the seminal book on the text. And so I've been able to uh, um, stand on your shoulders. And so, man, I, I, I just appreciate that. I appreciate your um your faithfulness. And back when I was a young guy, I'm 50 now, you're going to be 60 in <laughs> November. It's like, so yeah. now we got to hand it down to the next generation. But both of us are, are, are just indebted to uh, Pastor Ken Hutcherson of Antioch Bible Church right outside of Seattle in 1979. Uh, this theology, which we believe is Jesus and Pauline theology of building a multi-ethnic church, this ex-NFL player was doing it before a lot of people were even talking about it. And I know he laid hands on you and his team laid hands on me. And from that mosaic, your church planning network has done so much. Our round table has been able to do so much as well. So uh, when I saw that you were going to be the one I was in conversation with, I was extra happy because um, it's someone that I've truly walked with and learned from and, uh, man, you were doing this when it wasn't like the Vogue thing to do. Well, I appreciate those words. And like you said, so indebted to Ken Hutcherson. You know, that's a really a great place to, to start. You know, like uh, Ken Hutcherson, former NFL player, uh, passed away a 10-year battle with cancer. So hard to watch that over time. Such a great man of God, such a great leader, way before his time, if you will, in terms of encouraging the church to become uh, Revelation 7-9, on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, yourself, Miles McPherson, our good friend, uh, what is it about you NFL players that uh, somehow did you understand or embrace diversity uh, at a level? And then, and of course, being Christians that bring that into the church. Yeah. You, you know, one of one of these days I'm going to flesh it out more. But I think what it is, uh, Mark, is this is to play on a team. You understand that the vision of the team, the mission of the team comes before everything. And so you have the vision, you have the mission, but then each player has a specific role in making sure the vision and mission are realized. And what you understand quickly, particularly when you get to college and my high school was near a army, was near two military base, army and air force. So our team was multi-ethnic, right? Now, when I went to college, it was BYU, so it was not very multi-ethnic, but there were Polynesians and a handful of black dudes. But when you get to the NFL, you got you got cornbread fed white boys <laughs> from 
Iowa, uh, black dudes from Compton. I mean, I mean, and so at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to. We have a vision. We have a mission. Everybody has a role. And you develop to accomplish that. And so when I became a follower of Jesus, it just made sense. Like, what sense would it make to have a football team where everybody is an offensive lineman, six, seven, 345 pounds, 45 pounds. You have a big, slow team. So you need offensive linemen. You need skill positions. You need tight ends. You need quarterbacks. And so within the body of Christ, our ethnic diversity, even our socioeconomic diversity, our male-female diversity all has a role in this glorious picture of Jesus giving the father, the family he promised Abraham. God does not go back on his word. He told Abraham through you, all the ethnos, all the people would be blessed. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And in that seed is the life of the church. And the church is this incredible diversity in the midst of unity, not uniformity, because we don't want, um, 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 we don't want people to assimilate. We want people to accommodate. God doesn't want us to be a same. He wants us to have oneness. And there's so much beauty in that. And so I think that's what NFL players get is that you cannot win a football game without the diverse parts. And so God's kingdom is incredibly diverse. One of the things that I've been marinating in, um, N.T. Wright has really helped me with this, is on the cross, sin, death, and evil were defeated in the body of Christ. That's where sin goes to die. But in the resurrection, Jesus's body is where all of us go to live. Mm. And his body is made up of indigenous pe pe people, Latino people, Asian people, all kinds of people, not just for the sake of just simply being together, but loving each other and imaging forth the glory of God. Mm. I so appreciate the theology. That's one of the things I think you and I share uh, along with a few others, just a passion for the theology of this. This isn't about political correctness. This isn't about changing demographics. All that's well and good, but this is biblical. It's right. It's the hope of the gospel. That is to build multi-ethnic churches. As the new book from Derwin Gray talks about the title, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, that's going to appear here uh, in a link in the chat window for those of you tuning in today or perhaps afterward. Make sure you pick up a copy. You'll get into that rich theology that Derwin of course, brings an ISO love as well. And before we get to the theology, you know, you kind of follow the why, how, what model of Simon Sinek. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, your time as a high school player and then in the NFL. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from you, a phrase I often quote you on actually is uh, when in, in today, so many people want to increasingly build multi-ethnic churches, build healthy multi-ethnic churches. Um, you say, and I love this statement. Again, I quote you regularly on this. Um, before you can have a healthy multi-ethnic church, you've got to establish a healthy multi-ethnic life. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Uh, again, kind of riffing on your experience in high school, the NFL, but we've got to have this in our yeah. life, in our core as person, or as people, before we can expect to somehow change the systems of the church. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, by, by way of a statement and illustration, things that you are are hard to give up when things are tough. And in planning a multi-ethnic church, it is increasingly tough. And since 2015, it's gotten tougher. So that's the statement. The idea is this. 
is before you can lead somebody somewhere, you have to have walked in that path. Um, you have to embody it. So before my wife and I ever planted a multi-ethnic church, we lived a multi-ethnic life um, from our families to our friendships. My closest friend growing up was an Italian kid from Queens. Forget about it. Joey Bag of Donuts. He had this long, dark black hair. He's totally bald now. It's amazing. But man, I ate so much pasta basil. And so my whole life was building these intricate webs of relationships. And some of the most important men in my life have been white men. They've been black men. They've been Latino men, you, you know? Um, and so that was always a value for us. And something that, that just stuck in my mind um, when I was in uh, ninth grade, uh, I had a friend, he's white. His name was Chris. Chris had blonde hair. Chris would come over to the house and he would tell my grandmother, he would, he would go, oh, I'm just the average white boy. And she would say, no, you are a boy made in the image of God who happens to be white. Now, like I wasn't a believer, but that always stuck to me that you're an image bearer who contains the image of God in your various ethnicity. And before God, there's no favoritism that, e that we all equally image forth the glory of God. But in order to plan a multi-ethnic church, you have to have multi-ethnic relationships, which means this, uh, Pastor, and you know this, is, is in order for me to advocate for you, I have to love you. I have to know you. I have to suffer with you. I have to appreciate your children. I have to appreciate your, your, your struggle. And so often within Christianity, it, somehow we've gotten to the place that we can say we believe in Jesus and simply tolerate the other. I was in a conversation a while back and a uh, man said, you know, hey, I don't have a problem against them. And I said, well, you follow Christ, right? Yeah. I said, well, Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor as you're okay with them. No, as you lo love yourself. And I said, God calls us to something greater than toleration. He calls us to love. And if you ever doubt what love looks like, look at the cross. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long suffering. We have been created for love. And that's what the gospel is. And the devil loves to divide. Like we forget that there are dark powers. And I learned this from you, Mark, is there's a reason why Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 is in the book of Ephesians, put on the armor of God, because Paul spent so much time telling the Jews and Gentiles of Ephesus that Christ made a kainos, a new man out of the two, and the devil wants us to be divided, not unified. So therefore, we have to wear the armor of God. And so um, ethnic reconciliation in the gospel can't be a hobby. It has to be a habit. Mm. That's a great way to say that. Ethne, say that again, not, not a hobby, but a habit and the yeah. ethnic diversity of the gospel. Say yeah. that again. I want to make sure people capture exactly how you said that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so ethnic reconciliation, because there's only one race, the human race mm -hmm. comprised of different ethnic groups, sin, flesh, and the devil divides us. The blood of Jesus unifies us. So ethnic reconciliation in, in the gospel is not a hobby. It's a habit. And here's what I mean is um, after George Floyd, there was a proliferation 
of everybody getting into racial reconciliation, which is good. I'm for it. I know you're for it. We're for it. This is what we've been praying for. But don't speak if, if it's just a hobby. Like you've been doing this before I've known you. I've been doing doing this as long as you've known me as well. And this is a lot of years. And so we're not speaking out of, oh, this is a moment now. No, this is our life. And so sit down at someone's feet and learn. And, you know, primarily to my white brothers and sisters and and hear my heart in, 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 in this. This is so important. Learn from people who've actually done it. Mm-hmm. Be humble enough to go, will you teach me? Will you show me? Every idea doesn't have to be ours, right? At the end of the day, it all belongs to Jesus. But this has to be a holy habit and not a hobby that we move on to to next week. Like this is intrinsic to the gospel. It's not a SAR bar issue. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. And that's exactly where I wanted to take it. Dr. Derwin Gray talking about building a multi-ethnic church today on Exponential's webinar in this series. So glad to be talking with my friend about this important topic. And we're going to turn to theology here in a moment. Again, capture what he said. Ethnic reconciliation is not to be a hobby. It is to be a habit rooted in strong theology, rooted in the word of God. Uh, Our good friend, Dr. David Anderson, he says it uh, very similar. He says, this is not just nice. It's necessary. It's not optional. It's biblical. The church is to reflect God's love for all people, not just some people on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, as you just mentioned, I have said for many, many years that uh, that this idea of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, walking, working, worshiping God together as one, that justice and reconciliation, these things are not peripheral to the gospel. They are intrinsic to the gospel, which the entire book of Romans is about. And that's what I want to turn because uh, in your book, you've done a lot of work in the book of Romans uh, uh, on this subject. You know, we talked about how uh, in the past, Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church the night before he died, John 17. We see it in the model church of the New Testament played out. Uh, Luke demonstrates this in the church at Antioch, Acts 11, Acts 13 and following. Jerusalem is a starting point, folks. It is not the stopping point. And so we see the development of the healthy multi-ethnic church in its fullness, Acts chapter 11, Acts 13 and following. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul throughout his life and writings, he prescribes this. Again, not just nice, but necessary, not optional, but biblical for the church wherever possible throughout the world at any given time. And so there's that foundational theology. You've gone on to explain and to express some of this in the book of Romans particularly. So talk to us. Let's move to theology and folks. I'm thinking why, how, and what, as we explore this idea of building multi-ethnic churches, staying with the why for a moment, the theology riff, if you will, about uh, your thoughts on the book of Romans and, and, and Paul's exegesis there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before I do that, I'm I'm sensing in my spirit that there are some that are listening and they're like, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Just just give me the high two, you know, just show me how they're very pragmatic. And just as a brother in Christ. um, If you don't understand the theology, the theology is like the roots of a tree growing down deep. In order for the tree to go high, the roots have to go down. There's a reason why the Bible is filled with theology. Don't surrender to a populist, pragmatic consumer message. What I mean by populist is basically you're rallying people around something is bad and you got the good. Um, Consumeristic is, 
well, what's God going to do for me? Pragmatic is, well, does it work? God is calling us to something better than he's calling us to enter into his kingdom and his story, his way. Right. And so the book of Romans is an incredible book. And like so many people, I started out reading the book of Romans as what's Paul? Is Paul a Calvinist or is Paul an Arminianist? <laughs> or is Paul a Calminian? Is he an open theist? All this nonsense. Here's the deal. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicks all the Jews out of Rome. Why? Because many of the Jews were at Pentecost, and as the gospel grew, the Messianic Jewish believers were going into the synagogue saying, our Hamashur, our Messiah has come. He's Christ crucified and risen. Well, that caused synagogue, synagogue arguments and riots. And Claudius was like, get out. Y'all need to go. So from AD 49 to AD 54, all the Jews are out of Rome. Well, at that time, the Gentiles, the Gonim now, are finding Jesus as their Messiah, their king. And these house churches are growing. Claudius dies. Then Nero comes into power, AD 54, and then the Jews come back, and what do they find? They find Gentiles running a church, and they're kind of like, hold on, the varsity is back. We're back now, and so let us show you how. And if you don't believe this, Romans 11 tells us this because you have Jewish supremacy, and then you have Gentile supremacy, but in Jesus's church, it's only the supremacy of Jesus, which means that we can supremely love each other. The book of Romans can be summarized in Romans 15, where Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's Romans 15, 7. Romans 15, 8 goes on to say that Christ, the Messiah, was a servant to the circumcised so that the Gentiles would praise God, which is a quotation of Psalms. And so all the beautiful, rich theology that we have in the book of Romans boils down to this. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ and descending of the Spirit, Jews and Gentiles can be the new people of God, loving each other, forgiving each other, putting upon the clothing of Christ, not gratifying the flesh so that God would be glorified through their oneness and their harmony. People forget, and I think more so in this age, and Mark, I heard you say this years ago, um, people are looking not for a proclamation of the gospel, but a demonstration of the gospel first. And the book of Romans, when they were loving each other and building this community that should not have been enemies become friends, foes become family, and there was a new unity and community that Nero himself could never achieve, but that this peasant carpenter from Nazareth did all these years after he was executed, but his followers said he was risen from the dead. So the book of Romans has great theology, um, but it has nothing to do with Calminian or Arminian and Calvinist, like that's 16th century European discussions. We're talking about first century. We have to go back to go forward. And what I want to say to uh, uh, pastors and church leaders that are listening, we live in such a beautiful time, even though it's chaotic. Now, 
the wheat can really stand tall. Love can really stand tall. Um, Mark, I don't know about you, but all forms of justice are social. You know, people do word phrase like, well, biblical justice, social justice. Justice means this. I'm loving my neighbors. I love myself. I'm righting the wrongs. I'm making the sad things untrue. In other words, when Jesus healed the sick, that's justice. When Jesus overturned the money tables at the temple, which, by the way, was keeping the Gentiles away from God. Isaiah 56, 7, you turn my father's house into a den of thieves, right? And so justice is what love looks like demonstrated in the public square. And it's intrinsic to the gospel because people want to see love in action. And that's why God left us here. Yeah. You know, the justice piece just on that, what, what is your deal with social justice, right? If you're listening, I mean, it's justice in society. That's all it means. And and society is people. It's just justice in society. That that's it. And uh, as we're talking about here with Derwin Gray, Justice, not peripheral, but intrinsic to the gospel. You know, staying with the Book of Romans just for a moment, uh, and then we'll get to the how and what of building multi-ethnic churches. But uh, like you, when I went to seminary, I was taught that this is kind of Paul's, uh, the Mount Everest, if you will, of his presentation of the gospel. But it was uh, a number of years later doing my own work, and again, tipped off by good friends of mine, Greg Kappas, the late Ken Hutchison, to recognize there's actually two Gospels in the Book of Romans, and the Book of Romans was not written to explain what we commonly call the Gospel, that is reconciliation through uh, to God through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, uh, lest we can boast, uh, faith in Him. Uh, but actually, uh, it's a treatise about Paul's Gospel, Romans 16, 25 through 27, as you got into the mystery of Christ explained, of course, in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1. He says in Romans 16, 25, as he sums up the argument that you just made, talking to Jews and Gentiles of being one in the church for the sake of the gospel, he says, and now may God establish you. In the South, we say y'all, right? Establish y'all, Jew and Gentile, men and women, rich and poor in this church. May God establish y'all according to my gospel, he says, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ and the coordinating conjunction, proclamation, the Greek word kerygma, that proclamation of Jesus is what we commonly refer to as the gospel. I've taken to call it, Derwin, the capital G gospel, but then Paul's gospel, which only means good news, that's the word, it just means good news. If you're drowning in a river and I pulled you out, it's gospel to Derwin Gray, folks, I can assure you that. Paul says, my good news, delivered to me, of course, uh, on on the Damascus Road, built on the capital G gospel is Gentile inclusion in what would have been an otherwise all Jewish salvation, all Mm -hmm. Jewish local church, all Mm -hmm. Jewish kingdom of God. And like you, I came to realize that richness of the gospel, the whole gospel, Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the capital G gospel. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. Let me explain myself. And that was his thesis statement. So I know you and I share that rich love for Romans, for Pauline theology. And of course, this is what he gave his life for. Everything he writes is essentially rooted in expressing God's love for all people, not just some. It's in fact why he's arrested in the temple and why he ends up in a Roman prison and ultimately gives his life. Uh, Not so much for proclaiming as people generally believe the capital G gospel, but more importantly, his little gospel, his little G, Gentile inclusion. Uh, This is very specific, as you know, to his life and to the theology. Well, folks, when you understand this type of theology and you see this, it's like a car, isn't it, Derwin? You know, uh, when you get a new car, whether it's brand new or it's new to you, you know, you probably had that experience where 
Uh, you never saw it before on the road. And once you see it, see once it, you own it, everywhere. you see it everywhere, right? And that's, that's right. what theology, the New Testament theology, and particularly Pauline theology, that's true for that, isn't it? It is. It, it is. And, and one of the things is I was listening to you rift, and I hope that church leaders are listening, is what you did there, Mark, is you did a lot of announcing the gospel Big G, little G is an announcement of what's been done. Mm. A lot of our sermons are good advice on how to's. Um, apostolic teaching is announcement based. Here's what Christ has done, therefore. And a lot of our preaching is, is kind of like TED Talks. And then at the end, you go, well, you know, if you want your sins forgiven, believe this prayer. And you're inviting people into, yeah, can pe folks get saved? Of course. Yeah, God is mighty to save. He never leaves us out without a witness. But oftentimes it's in spite of us. Mm. Uh, one of the reasons why the church is so anemic is we think that it's our story. No, no. What you just did is you proclaimed an announcement, all of what God has accomplished, and you're inviting us into it. Modern preaching is here's what you need. And here's how God's going to give it to you. You need forgiveness. It's yours. You need this. It's yours. You need a new calling. It's yours versus here's the announcement of a king. And he invites you into the kingdom to participate. So not only do you get what he has for you, but you get caught up in his story. And so listen, our church has grown. It's big. Okay. That's great. But what I want to know is, we got big campuses and churches all over America and QAnon infiltrates the church. Mm. The church is more divided than secular pe pe people. So what good is it? That, what kind of campuses are we planting? What kind of church movement are we planting? I have so many of my white pastor friends who after the election and, and, and after George Floyd, they tried to preach on racial reckon ciliation and racism and thousands left their churches and they're looking at me going, I had no idea my church was this way. And I kind of let it sit there. And I say, well, what you catch them with is what you keep them with. And so you have been feeding them. You haven't dealt with these issues and Fox news has the progressive news has as well. So of things that really matter the news stations have dealt with that. Now they don't even believe what's in your pulpit. If you teach uh, uh, racism as a sin, you're woke now. You, you, you're you a Marxist. You're, you're doing critical race theory. By the way, Mark, you and I both have doctorates in this field. I have not heard of critical race theory until the last seven months when angry dudes were on the Internet. I have never come across it. And I've, I've read thousands of pages written 50,000 word thesis for my doctorate. Not one thing about critical race theory whatsoever. People, well, Black Lives Matter movement. Are you for Black Lives Matter movement? My question is this. Would there be a need for Black Lives Matter movement if the church was standing in the gap saying systemic injustice is wrong? Racism is wrong. Now, let me pause here. 
people go, well, there's no such thing as systemic injustice. I was in a conversation with a Christian friend and he told me that, you know, the media is against evangelicals and colleges against evangelicals. And I said, so you do believe in systemic injustice then? <laughs> well, that, I, that, yeah, you do. So if you think there's systemic injustice against evangelicals, do you think there may be some systemic injustice? But my point is, we need a richer, bolder, accessible theological reflection of announcing what Jesus has done. It is hard to get people to do what God has called them to do when you haven't told them that's the purpose of salvation. Hmm. Folks, I wish Dr. Derwin Gray understood what he's talking about. That's all I got to say. I wish he really understood this stuff and could explain it in ways that we could embrace it. No, seriously, bro, great, great teaching, great thought. And you can see so much thought goes into this. This is not, again, as Dr. David Anderson said, not just nice, but necessary that we understand first theologically and like the men of Issachar, understand the times and know what is right in our case for the church to do. And that's what Derwin Gray's new book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, is all about. You should see a link to that uh, in the webinar here. Pick up a copy, dive deeper into this theology, this understanding, because it's the theology, when we're rooted in that strong Pauline theology, New Testament theology, that was really envisioned by Christ in the night before he died. It's the mystery uh, of Christ long to be understood, Romans 16, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3, Romans Colossians 1, when that gets into your belly, gets into your bones, you'll see it everywhere. And then you'll understand how we need to announce, if you will, his story and draw others into it. This isn't about gimmicks. This isn't about, oh, yeah, hire a black person on your staff and your church will be diverse. No. Hey, yeah, of course, we're going to hire for diversity. But it starts with strong theology, because as Derwin has said, especially if you're planting churches, and I know a lot of people at Exponential, that's what it's all about. But when you're planting a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse church. It's that calling, that theology that's going to keep you in the game. We tell people, Derwin, it's seven to 10 years planting these types of churches to move from survival to stability yeah. and another seven to 10 from stability to sustainability. Yeah. Uh, but that's a conversation for another time. So all that's to say, Rich, uh, understanding, get the book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Derwin, let's turn our attention then here at, at the half hour mark, so to speak. We've talked about uh, some of the times we're living in, and of course, the rich theology of the book of Romans uh, that you express in your book. But let's now move on to some of the how uh, uh, and what. And I'm trying to follow again, kind of Simon Sinek, the why, how, and what, as you so aptly say, people want to jump to the what. What do I got to do? Tell me what to do, right? Well, we're yeah. telling you what to do. Start with theology. Have good conversation. Do mm -hmm. your own work in terms of history. And by the way, systemic issues, all that means is there are systems in place that marginalize or keep others from being part of that. And the homogeneous church was a system. I realized 24 years or so ago, I'm not a politician. I'm not an educator in terms of teaching at the university. I can't really have an effect on, on those systems, but I am a churchman. And I sought out to, in a sense, dismantle the structures of the church that kept people of color marginalized. I came from a very large church before I planted Mosaic. Uh, we went from two to 5,000 in eight years. Uh, well over uh, 100 people joined our staff in those years. In a town of 42 or 43% African-Americans, only two people were Black. 
out of all those hundreds of hires, when I looked out in the sea of 5,000 people, the only people of color were janitors and that began to bother me. That's a system. That's not necessarily a person or a racist. There's a structure there that has made that church what we call homogeneous. And I, as a churchman, and I know like you, Derwin, we are working on, and this is what this webinar, it's what Derwin's book is all about, dismantling structures in the church. That's not individual, that's collective, that's a system that prevents diverse people from the highest levels of leadership all the way to the nursery, from walking, working, worshiping God together as one in order to present a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse society. So structures do exist. Folks, that's all systemic racism is about, structural inequity, and we can affect that in the church. Maybe not in politics, maybe not in education. Of course, like Derwin, you said, if we got it right in the church, we would have the impact. Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will draw some people into myself, right? No, all people and to myself, but we have not got it wrong. And as the church so often, we are so far behind society, we've got to disrupt it and get ahead of it. So I, again, would love to talk about all these things as you do as well. Let's move to some of the how. You planted Transformation Church. You had this theology and just like me, we're learning all the time. We're growing in our understanding of the word of God and of theology and Christ's purpose for the church. But at some point you got it in your belly. You were in another church. You were an evangelist, still to this Mm -hmm. day an evangelist. Uh, but now you got it in your belly that I wanted to establish a church that reflected God's love for all people, not just talk about it or understand it for myself. So let's talk about it in terms of church planting and or perhaps even churches that already exist who are majority culture, particularly. Uh, How how do you go about understanding what you do? Those first steps, those first understandings in in terms of how to develop a multi-ethnic church? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing is is by way of a story, um, there was there was this incredible young church, and it was growing by, man, hundreds daily. And also, there was like a famine. And so what the church did is it created um, a food pantry for orphans, widows, you know, as such. Well, one group of people, one ethnic group was getting in line first. They were getting their needs met first. And then this other group of people of a different ethnicity, but of the same belief in Christ were getting neglected. It was an unjust system. And so what they did is they went to the leaders of the church and they they said, Hey, um, our widows who look like us ethnically, who are social economically in our place, like us, they're being looked over, they're being taken advantage of. And so what the leaders of the church did is they said, listen, let's get together and I want you guys to pray over someone who can represent and mediate this because justice and equality matters to our king. So that's what they did. They raised up seven leaders. And ironically, those seven leaders were the same ethnicity of the group who were being taken advantage of. Why did they do do that? Because identity by representation, those people understood their people's needs better than the majority culture people. Well, what I just did was gave a modern fable of Acts chapter six. In Acts chapter six, the Hebraic Jewish women are getting the lion's share of the food. The Hellenistic Jewish women are not. They give a complaint. The apostle says, we're going to go to the word and pray. You guys decide. And they have seven leaders. And all those leaders have names like Philip. 
which is a Hellenistic name. So it begins with leadership. Your leadership team, people with authority, people who shape culture and culture is not what you say. Culture are the behaviors that cause you to not just survive, but thrive in an environment. They took seven Hellenistic men to be deacons, as you would, or representatives for the Hellenists to help lead in the food distribution. So you have to have leaders of different ethnicities. Your leadership team is going to reflect what you want your congregation to be. One of the things, uh, Mark, in recent times, and I know that you're aware of this, is 58% of mega churches now, which is 2,000 people or more, are considered uh, multi-ethnic, meaning 80% of one ethnic group is not the most. But of these 58% of uh, mega churches that are multi-ethnic, over 90% of the pastors and staff are white. And so what you have is you have chocolate and caramel chips in a bowl of vanilla. And so the chips add a little bit of flavor, but not enough to really make a difference. And so we don't need chocolate and caramel chips in a bowl of vanilla. We need swirls so that the taste will intermesh and integrate and make something new and beautiful. And so a lot of the modern day uh, multi-ethnic church movement is quite opposite of what you have proposed for years and what I've proposed for, for years is that, and what the Bible does most importantly, is that ethnic diversity and leadership matters. And so you want to hire character over gifting and you want to just like people who are full of the spirit because your leadership team is going to let them know what it is that you're really about. Yeah. That's Acts chapter 13, one, the great church at Antioch, multi-ethnic, economically diverse Jew and Gentile men and women, rich and poor. Acts 13, one is the staff page on their website. Two are from Africa, one from the middle East, one from Asia minor and one from the Mediterranean. It's modeling an exegesis that's called indirect prescription. The readers of the book of Acts would have understood on the heels of the description of Antioch, this church, diverse church, diverse leadership. And that's what you're talking about, empowering diverse leadership. One of the most critical first steps or the how of building a healthy multi-ethnic church. And, and not in a token way, by the way, folks, that's why you have to understand the theology. It's not about tokenism. It's ultimately about the swirls. What a great word picture, Derwin has given to us, uh, not just chocolate chips, so to speak, or other flavors in the bowl, but the swirl. And this is what Paul, of course, prays that we would know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of God's love. It's exactly what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter three, the manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God. That's what the Greek word means, would be displayed in the church and the glory of God would be revealed. So how to do it? Definitely empowered verse leaders. Let's stay on that just for a second, Derwin, because I'm literally um, interim directional leader of a large church in Columbia, Missouri at the moment, helping them through the Mosaics Global Network, get some things right. Uh, they've just pitched their church to become a multi-ethnic church. That's their desire. 15 staff, one person from Iran, one Iranian on staff, everybody else white. If you're thinking about empowering diverse leaders, and that's your aspirational goal, and you get it from a theological perspective, I know one of the challenges that a majority culture churches, and we're talking mostly today about majority culture churches, although it applies to Mexican churches and black churches and, and Chinese churches. But one of the challenges is uh, we, we don't have any money at the moment. We have a set team, right? Uh, and, and so how would you advise, how would you uh, help pastors right now who in a sense, mm -hmm. well, do I fire half the staff to replace them with people of color? 
Uh, how would you advise yeah. going from where you are in the moment to yeah. where you'd want to be? And, and how can we incrementally do that? Maybe at a lay level first or moving forward. What would yeah. you, what kind of advice or tip would you give to pastors struggling with that issue? Yeah. The, the first thing that I would do is for that staff to bring in someone like you. So that's number one. Number two, to spend a season in prayer and fasting, to spend a season of prayer and fasting. And then number three, begin to disciple the staff in multi-ethnic ministry and ecclesiology. Number, uh, and then I would transition to communicating that in the congregation. My cat's going to get up here and he's like 22 pounds. Um, um, began to pepper that through the congregation in communication and teaching because Jesus loves his church more than we do. So the people are either there, they're on their way there, or they're being prepared, right? And so there is an aspect of development. So we're at a point in our staff now to where, you know, there's some hires from the outside, but most are people that we have just developed and discipled over the years. And so we have to think in terms also, not five months, but what can God do in five years? Yeah, that's just, right. Just because a handful of churches blow up overnight and are huge doesn't mean that's who God's called you to be, you know? And yeah. so- Play um, the patience. long game, right? That's yeah. what you're talking about is play the long game. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm glad to hear you articulate this, beginning with, with some measure of, of counsel and guidance from proven leadership that can then help through prayer and fasting, through discipleship, communicating to the church. I'm glad to hear you talk about that because that's exactly what we've been working on and doing in Missouri. In fact, here's a little bit of a how tip, folks, on their website. You can go. This is real time, a church called woodcrest.org, woodcrest.org. But we recently rolled out the new vision and mission uh, worked on as a team, the elders of the church, the staff uh, got to a point it's on their website. And of course, it's talking about becoming a healthy multi-ethnic church and a socially just church, et cetera. This, is a tr this was like a Willow Creek church at one time that is now totally drank the Kool-Aid. But I love this on the website because it, it's, it says on there when it writes, when, when the vision is there, right under it, it says, this is not who we are at the moment but this is who we intend to become. Yes. Come join us in the journey. That, that kind of honesty. Some people, you know, they're, they're starting a church. They want to be multi-ethnic. They put stock photos on or whatever. No, I've just seen those. be honest. Just be honest I've about where those. you are and invite others into the journey, right? I've, I, I, I have seen those. And I, I think that's the beauty of transparency and humility to say, this is not who we are, but this is who we're going to be. And here's why. And I want people to understand the why. This is a discipleship issue. When Jesus tells his 120 Jewish disciples, go make disciples of all ethnic groups, right? So think of it in a first century Jewish perspective. Jewish Jesus is telling his Jewish disciples, go to the Gentiles, the nations. Now, History of Jews and Gentiles was not a good one. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Zebubites, the Babylonians, and now the Romans. And it's like Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to go reach the people who've oppressed you and persecuted you. And, you know, people like Haman that wanted to wipe you off the face of the earth, right? Mm -hmm. 
No wonder Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like going on mission means I'm willing to leave behind prejudice and fear to join Jesus in reaching the other to build his church. And so this is fundamentally a discipleship issue. Churches like ours, Mark, I believe discipleship happens faster because of the other. Uh, Sameness creates echo chambers of ignorance. Diversity, you have the same truth and God's truth is so deep and so wide, right? Applications, many different applications, one understanding of it, but the way you see that understanding is determined by your situatedness in life. And so when you have different people together, looking at the text, stretching each other in humility, in unity, that increases our capacity to grow. That's one of the biggest things that I've seen from our church is how people grow in the midst of the other. Yeah. So in terms of how folks were talking about empowering diverse leaders, we've talked a br- uh, briefly about the challenge of doing that when your staff is already set and the transition going forward. If you're planting a church, look for a diverse team out of the gate. You don't want to be like the white guy going, hey, all you people of color, come join me in my mission, right? Like look for like-minded people, establish your launch team with diverse others, empowering them at, uh, at all fields. Uh, in in terms of the church, from the pulpit to the nursery and at every stop in between. And that kind of takes us to another core commitment in terms of how, uh, Derwin, we can't just sit around in our office and pray all day, oh, God, please bring to me diverse others, right? We have to take intentional steps. We have to be intentional uh, in all of this. And one of those steps involves promoting a spirit of inclusion. This is something that churches can do just right out of the gate, literally tomorrow, like Sunday, right? Who's leading your announcements? Who's passing around communion? You can get lay folks involved. Again, even if you're not there yet, begin to get others involved, but talk to us a moment about the how of promoting a spirit of inclusion. Yeah, yeah. You know, just as you were talking about that, it made me think of Barnabas. People think that the apostle Paul was the first one to do multi-ethnic church ministry. It was actually Peter in Acts chapter 10. And then Barnabas in Acts 11 actually goes to Tarsus to find the Apostle Paul and brings him to the multi-ethnic church at Antioch. It was Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas is like, okay, I'm going to go get this guy who was a hardcore Chael Pharisee, Jewish nationalist, persecutor of the church, theological giant who's been radically touched by Jesus. And now I'm going to bring him down here so that he can see the Jews and Gentiles being the family of God. And from that experience, then Paul goes and takes the gospel to uh, uh, Europe and all throughout the Mediterranean world. Right. And so a spirit of inclusion means this. Uh, I'm not I'm not putting people who are not qualified in positions. Right. Just because of their skin color. You want to pray in and develop qualified people, just even doing announcements like my uh, executive pastor, uh, Pastor Tom Bias, came from the business world, uh, recovering um, addict out of uh, New York. And when he's given announcements or when he's leading for the Boricuas, the Puerto Ricans, they're like, man, that's that's one of us. 
right? And then when women teach and preach and when women like my wife lead or that spirit of inclusion matters because that's what our community looks like. They're also gifted, but I'm called to develop them as well. A spirit of inclusion can just be said that can be said this way. I love people. It's like when you love people, you want them to be known. You want them to be seen. You want them to be developed. Right. And so that's what a spirit of inclusion is, right? We're not talking about including a lack of biblical morality and holiness. We're talking about ethnicity, culture, um, socioeconomic class and background. Like, man, I never thought that I would pastor a church with country white folks in it. I, I just didn't think that would just be my deal. And you know what the Lord did? He gave me a church full of them and they love me. And they respect me and they pray for me and I love and respect them. Their otherness has made me better and my otherness makes them better. And that's how the Holy Spirit bears witness that we're sons and daughters of God and grows us in the fruit of the spirit. We forget that the fruit of the spirit is in the book of Galatians. And what was the whole book of Galatians about? It was about Jews telling Gentiles, you have to take upon the marks of a Jew to really be a follower of Christ. You have to give up your culture to be a follower of Christ. And the apostle Paul says, no, within Christ, there's oneness. We all belong to Abraham now in Christ. We are all clothed with Christ. So bring your, it's the differences that make us different for the better. And I want people to understand that this is not just up here, heady stuff. Like this is boots on the ground and Mark, just the way God has used you uniquely to build Mosaic Church, he's used us uniquely to build Transformation Church, but we all have the same ingredients. And what we're trying to do is add to the pot because most people think the gospel is, okay, Jesus died for my sins and I don't go to hell when I die. And I kind of live for him, I guess. And I invite my friends and try not to do bad. Whereas the gospel, right? The big G gospel is an announcement that there's a new king. He's crucified and risen, sin, death, and evil defeated. And by faith, you can participate in his victory. By faith, you can become who God has created you to be within his diverse family that he promised Abraham. Yeah, and you bring it right back. You know, we said earlier, and anyone who knows Dr. Derwin Gray, you know you're going to hear the gospel, the capital G gospel preached along with Paul's gospel of inclusion because that's the whole gospel. That's who he is. It leaks out of his bones wherever you are. His new book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, talking about the rich theology that undergirds our need and the passion to develop churches for all people, not just some in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized and cynical society. The link should be on the webinar as you're reading. Derwin, we've got about eight minutes left. We'll be sensitive to the time here. We're talking also in terms of the hows of empowering diverse leaders, of promoting a spirit of inclusion. You talked about simply loving people. I thought about Philippians chapter two, when Paul yeah. in that same vein says, do not merely think of your own personal interest, meaning people groups, white people in a church. Don't just think about white people and what they want. Think about African-Americans, think about Hispanics, think about Asians, think about the poor. We, yeah. He says, don't just think about your own people group interests, but also the interest yeah. of other people groups as we build a healthy multi-ethnic church. And you said it yourself, he goes on to talk about the humility and the obedience of Christ. 
who becomes yeah. the example of leveraging power, position, and privilege, l- emptying of yourself, letting it go, coming down and pushing others up the hill, as opposed to trying to keep others down while you yeah. stay on the top of the hill. And David Anderson talks about this in terms of promoting a spirit of inclusion. He says it real simple, folks. If you're looking for a little hook, here it is from Dr. David Anderson. Say it, stage it, staff it. Yep. Say it. That's the casting of vision rooted in strong theology. Stage it in the way we promote inclusion. Again, simple things. Who's passing out communion? Who's doing announcement? Who are your greeters at the front door? That's easy. That doesn't require any paycheck, no mm-hmm. health insurance, right? That's a start. For churches that may be majority culture at the moment, beginning to empower diverse others in your church, and over time, all the way to the elder board and the staff team, uh, as well, and that's and that's the idea of staffing it. So, say it, stage it, staff it is maybe a little a phrase that you can keep in mind in terms of promoting a spirit of inclusion. And Derwin, I want to pull it back. We got about five minutes left. Yeah. Let pull it all the way back because one of the other hows, of course is developing cross-cultural relationships and pursuing cross-cultural competence, or as we say uh, at Mosaic CQ, cultural intelligence. But talk to us as we finish up here in the next few moments about that, how of developing cross-cultural relationships and pursuing cross-cultural competence. Yeah, that's a great way to conclude this because that's so important. For majority culture people, so for white Christians Developing cross-cultural competency is going to be harder for you. And here's why. Because you're the majority culture, you typically don't have to learn about other cultures to survive. Whereas for minorities, I've always had to know the story of the other to navigate the world. Uh, Recently, I was talking to Kerry Newhoff, and Kerry Newhoff is up in Canada and Pretty much lot, lots of folks know if you follow me on social me- media, Fridays are my Sabbath. So I was up at five o'clock this morning. I already caught a boatload <laughs> of fish and I'm already back. I saw home. that. Yeah, I and saw that. So 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 Carrie up in Canada said, Derwin, hey, man, I heard that when the when uh, the explorers first came to Canada, they said there were so many fish that they could walk on the backs of fish from canoe to canoe. He goes, in 1789, the fish were everywhere. He goes, wouldn't you love to go back in time to 1789 and fish there? And I said, Carrie, I'm black. No, I don't want to go back to 1789 and fish anywhere in North America. Are you kidding? And so we laughed. And then he stopped laughing and he, and he went, oh, Derwin. I've never seen it that way. You going back to 1789, that's a time of slavery and Native American genocide and those types of things. And he's like, I've never seen it that way. I'm so sorry. And what I said is, well, uh, you you don't have to say you're sorry. We are brothers in Christ. But this is why cross-cultural competency is so important is I'm willing to walk in your shoes and you're willing to walk in my shoes. Cross-cultural competency means this, that we as Christians have to think like missionaries. We have to meet people where they are, know their hopes, their fears, know the cultural struggles. Like you don't want to say to a Jewish person, man, Germany in the 1940s was awesome. Would you like to go back there? Mm. You would never say that, right? Mm -hmm. Cross-cultural competency is loving people enough to say, I want to know your story and I want to honor your story. Mm -hmm. And by the way, 
Jesus of Nazareth embodied cross-cultural competency better than anybody. That's what the incarnation is about. We have a high priest who can sympathize with everything that we've gone through without sin. He understands us to the nth degree, and he wants to live in us for us to have an understanding as well so that we can contextualize the gospel and understand folks that when an unarmed black man is being shot, what black people see is a history of police brutality, not just Rodney King in 92, not just the civil rights when dogs were unleashed upon black people trying to vote, but we're seeing that police were started as a way to maintain plantations. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Never dismiss anyone's pain at the altar of political expediency. To love your brother means blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Cross-cultural competency is an exercise in love. So good. Well, folks, we're almost out of time here coming up to the end. It's been great talking to pastor, author, teacher, Dr. Derwin Gray. His new book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church, is out. You should see the link here. Get it, read it, study it. You know, we're talking as we finish up, Derwin, we talked about three hows, beyond the theology, beyond the contextual sociological moment, this rich theology of the New Testament calling us to be the church on earth as it is in heaven, reflecting God's love for all people, not just some people. You know, you're going to talk, folks, you're going to say, you're going to hear people say, it's just not natural. Birds of a feather flock together. But you know, when we signed up for this Christian thing, I thought it was about living in the supernatural, right? Going above and beyond what is natural. You're going to hear people say, it's just too hard. Well, no pass for degree of difficulty in the word of God. I'm so glad as you're talking about uh, Jesus becoming cross-cultural, leaving the culture of heaven for the culture of earth and a Jewish culture. I'm so glad he didn't say to his father, it's just too hard. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to Jews and eat like a Jew and sleep like a Jew. I'm a citizen of heaven, so to speak. No, it's not, no pass for degree of difficulty in the word of God. And then of course, people are going to say, I just don't like it. I just want to be with my own kind. I just don't like it. Well, where in the word of God is it about what you like? I thought we're supposed to establish the church on earth the way Christ wants it to be, the way the Apostle Paul, the way the New Testament church, not get churches to fit our personal experience, our past experience, our preferences, our personalities. We are to align ourselves in the church with the Word of God. And that's what Derwin's promoting in his book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. Derwin, so great to be with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time, Exponential, for putting on this webinar. So glad we could have this conversation and so much more. Derwin, I'll give you the last word as we wrap up. My last word is this, is Jesus is better than everything. Trust him. Let him love you. Let him live through you and ask him to give you a glimpse of his glory. Amen. Well, God bless everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Exponential continues the webinar series. Pick it up. And again, get Dr. Derwin Gray's book, Building a Multi-Ethnic Church. We'll see you next time here at Exponential.